As Americans remember the life of their 41st president, George Herbert Walker Bush, much of the attention has gone to his accomplishments abroad, from his heroic service in the Second World War to his adroit management of the end of the Cold War. But aspects of Bush's leadership at home were also notable, not least his unprecedented declaration that he would be our nation's first education president. How did President Bush pursue that title? And as we look back a quarter century later, does he deserve it? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Chester Finn, President Emeritus of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and Senior Fellow at the Stanford University's Hoover Institution. From 1985 to 1988, Checker served as the Assistant Secretary for Research and Improvement at the U.S. Department of Education. You can find Checker's reflections on President Bush's education legacy at our website at educationnext.org, and I'm delighted that he's agreed to discuss that legacy with me today. Checker, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Uh, it's always a treat to talk to you and to be on your podcast. Thanks. So let me start our conversation with a brief, somewhat embarrassing personal anecdote. As a college senior in 1998, I applied for a somewhat prestigious scholarship and as part of the interview process was asked to name someone in contemporary political life who I admired. George Bush, I said, because he was the education president and I was then asked to describe what he had accomplished as education president and found myself unable to do much more than repeat that he had given himself the title. And the interview went downhill from there. To a large extent, your reflections on President Bush's legacy with respect to American education provide the answer I might have given to that follow-up question. So let me ask you now, 20 years later, what should I have said? What exactly did George Bush accomplished as education president and perhaps also as Ronald Reagan's vice president from 1981 to 1988? Uh, very uh, good and important topic. I think you, in, in 1998, when you uh, stumbled in your interview, you might have said that you were uh, uh, some years into the Clinton administration at that point, and about two-thirds of what was going on in education during the Clinton years wouldn't have happened without Bush setting the stage for it and, um, and, and giving it a head start uh, a few years earlier. Uh, Bush uh, obviously was aware, after a nation at risk early in the Reagan presidency, of the country's education problems, and uh, he began to bestir himself a little bit during his time as vice president. He'd um, go around uh, visiting schools. He hosted the governors in Kennebunkport not long after the Nation at Risk report and heard them ventilate about the need for uh, better federal support for their efforts to fix education in their own states uh, and the need for better data, incidentally, also from the federal government about educational achievement. And uh, by the time he became uh, president, having declared, as you said, that he wanted to be the education president, which nobody had ever said before, nobody running for office had ever said anything like that before, uh, uh, one of the early things he did um, during his first year in office was to convene all the governors, I think 49 of them actually came, including Bill Clinton, by the way, uh, to a so-called summit uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia. And they spent several days. Uh, ably staffed by some of Bush's White House aides, and they emerged with, uh, to everyone's astonishment, I think, uh, a set of national education goals for the country for the year 2000, which was then 11 years in the future. 
Uh, and the uh, the goals that they set were wildly ambitious and, and, and probably unrealistic, but the fact that they set them uh, triggered a sequence of events that I believe we're still living with uh, today. Uh, they led from the statement of goals, which uh, Bush echoed in an address to Congress a year later, uh, and which the National Governors Association echoed, uh, led by uh, 1992 uh, and 1994 into federal legislation. Uh, the so-called Goals 2000 Act, which happened on Clinton's watch, uh, and the uh, uh, which which essentially reinforced the goal statement and added to it and added metrics and added some mechanisms for tracking progress and things like that. Uh, and accompanying Goals 2000 was a revision, a reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act that took the ambitious name the Improving America's Schools Act, and this was 1994, just four years before your embarrassing interview, by the way, uh, and that law set um, uh, an obligation on states that wanted federal Title I funding to set academic standards, which nobody had ever really demanded of states before, and to uh, set measuring, uh, testing, basically assessments to determine whether kids were uh, achieving up to that standard. So that was 1994, and seven years later that evolved um, into the No Child Left Behind Act, which uh, frankly tightened the screws on states and said they had to have goals, uh, standards, they had to have goals, they had to have um, assessments, they had to have accountability uh, mechanisms. And that governed uh, much of American K-12 education for about 15 years until the Every Student Succeeds Act came along just recently. Anyway, my point would be that for a full quarter century and really continuing uh, into the present moment, uh, the basic direction of federal K-12 education policy was shaped, or at least uh, pre prefigured, uh, by what Bush and the governors did in that Charlottesville summit in 1989. There, there we are. It's interesting that you point to the 1994 legislation. I've always found it interesting that people often tell the story of American education policy by highlighting No Child Left Behind as the key point of departure. But really, you see this transition being made in 1994 that's reflected in the relabeling of the law, the Improving America's Schools Act, where the federal government was no longer just going to be giving money to support what states were already doing, but really trying find, to find ways to leverage those funds in order to uh, help states actually improve. And that seems to me to be the key point of departure and one that you're saying flows directly out of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush's leadership. Yes, it didn't make sense to have uh, goals if you didn't have some mechanism for uh, boosting achievement in the direction of those goals. And so Goals 2000 and the Improving America's Schools Act uh, kind of dovetailed uh, with the uh, with the latter um, act actually putting both money on the table and also uh, these requirements on states. Now, we could have a really good argument about whether, in retrospect, this was a good thing to do, because when the screws tightened under No Child Left Behind uh, in 2001, 2002, a lot of mischief began to occur, as well as, I think, some good things. 
uh, and uh, the pressure from Washington got too heavy, and that's part of what led to a some modest reduction in pressure in the ESSA legislation of 2015. But, yes, this is still part of a sequence that uh, began with uh, Bush 41. And one of the things I learned from your piece was just how extraordinary that summit of the nation's governors in Charlottesville actually was, that only twice previously had a president actually convened a summit of the National Governors Associations. The two Roosevelts had done it to discuss issues of conservation in one case and economic development in in another. And so this was largely unprecedented, certainly that it would be focused on education. Why do you think President Bush took that step? What uh, can can you shed light on on that decision? I'm not sure what the answer is to that, but uh, he was he was um, fumbling a little bit for now. I elected, now I am the education president. What exactly do I do? Uh, it needs to be said that he was ill-served at that moment by a weak education secretary who did not have a lot of imagination, and uh, he had a strong White House staff. Uh, who thought a lot about education and were trying to uh, help him uh, create and innovate. I think uh, part of the part of the energetic fumbling, if I can call it that, was they said, let's get all the governors together. Um, I, Bush, know the governors. They came to see me in Kenny Bunkport. I got along with the governors, um, and the governors have a lot of energy on the education issue. And uh, let's see what we can come out with. And there were a whole bunch of education-minded governors, many of them from the South, people like Clinton, who were very much engaged with education reform at that point, should also say that, that, that during the 80s, before Bush became president, the, the NGA itself had already, uh, led by Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, had already gotten its act together to focus on education uh, with a five-year program that I believe they called Time for Results. And so the, the governors were a kind of obvious, natural, almost ready-made partner uh, for Bush and his White House staff. And so I don't know whether they went into the summit knowing that they were going to come out with national education goals, uh, but they certainly did come out with them. And uh, that, as I suggested, uh, led to a series of dominoes in federal education policy, and in many states, too, obviously all states, really, eventually, um, that uh, have um, those dominoes fell with a lot of noise, and some of them are still falling down. What's interesting to me about it is that it represents a, a nice example of a president using the bully pulpit to influence education in ways that go beyond his someday her formal authorities. Right. It's bully pulpit, and it's also a convening. It's also a nice example of federalism in action, if you will, of the um, states and the states getting together and getting together with the federal government and seeing if they can work on something jointly. Yeah. And I assume that President Bush, as a Republican, probably uh, wouldn't have had backing even within his own party for sort of uh, talking about a legislative approach right away to uh, intervene more directly in in education. And so this was an example of what he was able to do within the, uh, um, yeah, I guess, from a pragmatic perspective with the uh, political situation that he faced. I think that's right. Uh, keep in mind, he, he emerged from 
the Reagan administration, which had had um, actually very ambivalent views about the federal role in education. Uh, you know, Reagan started off by trying to abolish the brand new Department of Education, uh, and uh, a nation at risk emerged from the Department of Education because there wasn't much else that Secretary Bell was given given license to do other than have a commission and issue a report. But then Bill Bennett came along during the second Reagan term uh, and demonstrated how the bully, bully pulpit could be used very effectively. Uh, and Reagan, of course, climbed on board the education issue once he realized that, that it was an issue and that it had, tra- that it had legs. So I think that there was there was no real precedent for um, the federal government as a government uh, nudging or lever- leveraging the states to do anything very different in education other than take the money and try to improve the achievement of disadvantaged kids and other stuff like civil rights protections and so on. Um, so I think the, the, the Bush administration was, was almost exploring what's a new way we might do things. And um, the summit was the first step, and then all these other things uh, happened. I might have mentioned earlier that coming out of the summit um, and, and that unsatisfactory Secretary of Education, uh, Bush also appointed a White House Advisory Committee on Education. I was a member of it. It was, it was known as PPAC, the President's Education Policy Advisory Committee, uh, and uh, in short order, also uh, asked Lamar Alexander to take over as education secretary. And, and Lamar devised for Bush uh, a, a, an action plan called America 2000 uh, that also prefigured uh, the Goals 2000 program. In fact, uh, for a while in the 90s, people couldn't tell the difference between America 2000 and Goals 2000. I remember colleagues and friends of mine having to work hard to uh, explain that there really was a difference between what Clinton was proposing and what and what Bush and Lamar had proposed. And in truth, it wasn't that much of a difference. You walk us through the history of the education legislation that followed after Bush's time in office from improving America's Schools Act to No Child Left Behind to the Every Student Succeeds Act. In, in your article, you write that one could make a pretty good case that 2015's ESSA legislation marked a sort of return to America 2000, that program that you just mentioned. In what ways is that so? And to what extent do you think that reflects the fact that, as you just mentioned, Lamar Alexander was central to both of them? I think that's a really, really interesting point. Uh, The key similarity between uh, America 2000 and ESSA, uh, separated as they were by something like 24 years, but having the common uh, thumbprint of Lamar Alexander on both of them, uh, they focus on states as the lead actors. America 2000 was about leveraging states by... um, bully pulpit, by a little bit of money, by um, sort of moral suasion, and by public um, public outcry, if you will, uh, getting states to change their own ways and tempting them in various ways to change their own ways. Um, not so much a heavy hand um, and uh, not a heavy federal hand. And what ESSA has in common with that, obviously, was a, a, a lightening of the heavy federal hand of, of NCLB and a return of quite a lot of authority and, and variability to, to state decision-making. 
I, I think that um, clearly reflects um, Lamar Alexander's own uh, sort of view of the world and his history as a governor and uh, his uh, uh, instinct as to how education is best handled in a country where, let's keep in mind, the, the federal constitution doesn't ever use the word education. Now, you chose to combine your remembrance of President Bush with reflections on the life of Harold Levy, a less well-known education reformer who also passed away in recent weeks. As you acknowledge, they seem on the surface to be an unlikely pairing. In Bush, we have a New England aristocrat turned Texas oilman and Republican politician. And in Levy, we have a Wall Street lawyer and lifelong Democrat. But who was Harold Levy? What did he and Bush share in common, and what did you learn from looking back at their lives side by side? Well, Harold Levy, who died, I believe, the same week as um, as President Bush, uh, and and at a much younger age, and from a, a, a heinous disease, um, was a chancellor of the New York City schools um, just before uh, Michael Bloomberg became mayor. Uh, and leader of a number of extremely important um, changes that took place in the country's largest school system. Uh, And then he worked in the private sector, but on a number of of education nonprofits and and causes in the interim, and then took over as head of the Jack Kent Cook Foundation um, five or six years ago. And in that role, he became the country's uh, most, ardent uh, champion of the educational needs of gifted children, um, high achievers, but especially high achieving poor kids, and how to maximize the potential and the the gifts of poor kids who needed help in order to uh, get a better school with scholarships, with uh, uh, a whole slew of, of, of programs and bully pulpit activity. Uh, And uh, he actually began to put the needs of uh, disadvantaged smart kids on the national agenda in a way they they hadn't been before. What I found in common, in particular, uh, between uh, uh, Bush and and Levy was a concern for achievement, for the uh, better education of um, poor kids, and at the same time for raising standards, raising, raising our sights, uh, looking for um, higher achievement, uh, not just settling for something resembling kind of minimum competency or minimum adequacy. Uh, and um, well, they, they in person had not that much in common, as you said. Uh, I think that uh, the signals they sent about what matters in education uh, were um, almost identical and I think that they were in many ways complementary. Uh, Levy representing both the private sector and the local orientation, and Bush representing uh, very much the federal government and the a state orientation. My guest today has been Checker Finn, President Emeritus of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and author of Remembering Two Education Reformers, available now at educationnext.org. Checker, thanks for being part of the podcast. Uh, happy to join you. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to check out our archive and, especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners find us.